Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I am Keeper Jen, and with me tonight are Keeper Mark. Hello, everyone. And Keeper Bob. <laughs> Evening, everybody. We were doing so well. Tonight, we explore the written work of an Appendix N author noted primarily for his editing, Andrew J. Offit. We're taking a look at his short story, Gone with the Gods. Bob, take it away. The main character of Gone with the Gods would seem to be a thinly disguised Offit, a writer who turns out a prodigious number of novels at the beck and call of his editor, writing in whatever genre is hot at the moment to fulfill the needs of an insatiable audience. When his editor calls him to look into the possibility that a former fraternity brother of the editor's has invented a time machine and asks him to check out the possibility that device is real so the editor can invest in it, the author finds himself looking into the far-fetched claim. Of course, the time machine, disguised as a VW microbus, eventually works, and Harvey Moss, the author, Mark Ventner, the publisher, and Ben Corrick, the inventor, all take their turns traveling in the bus, only to learn its limitations. It can only go one day into the future, but any when in the past. Although it remains tied to Earth so they don't have to worry about showing up in outer space, they do figure out how to take it to different places on Earth. Eventually, in order to make some money, Moss travels back in time to spur human development and plant evidence that he can use to write a best-selling book that Ventner can publish and sell. <laughs> this is pretty absurd. Oh, yeah, the, yeah, I this, thought it was a really one, great way to take a cheap shot at uh, Von Daniken's Chariots of the Gods myself. Oh, Von yeah. The gods, Chariots yeah. of the Gods. One correction, though, from the from the intro. It wasn't a VW microbus. I think it was a VW Squareback station wagon. Yeah, the uh, the synopsis yeah. says microbus, but yeah, it was, a, it was a wagon. But come on, can't you just no, picture it with it, 11 long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus? It's, it's a wizard so van, guys. It's totally a wizard van. <laughs> You're right. It's a wizard wagon, really. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome, Jen. <laughs> like burning wood panels. Yeah. Right. And this is written with such a jaded tone. It, it's kind of odd at first, and then it just seems natural, and it and it reads really yeah, right clearly. <laughs> Not another gothic. Oh my god! There's another. There's another forlorn woman standing on a cliff face in front of a castle again. Oh, yeah. And write this crap again? I mean, even just based on this little piece, I can see the, the humor and the snark value being something that Gary Gygax may have said, ooh, I really like this guy. So now I'm really curious. He's called out in Appendix Inn 
for his editing, like Bob said. And it's and it was really trying to trace that thread of as a writer, he has some intriguing ideas that are obviously not nothing that I could find directly connected to you know the kind of source books or the original books from you know, like Gary well, he, Kygax. But he did write a trilogy of Conan. He did, he did. It, it, but it's he's he's but is the yeah. only one that's really called out specifically for his editing, if I remember. And it is only for like one volume of editing that he did specifically. It's like Swords Against Darkness three, but he he edited he other did five volumes. of those. Yeah. yeah. It's like, why that one? <laughs> so apparently, one of them is really good. <laughs> yeah, so so if someone can get their hands on the third one, I think I found the second one in the spinner rack at the Goodman booth at Gen Con oh, last year. Oh, yeah. But if someone can find the third one and maybe just, like, scan in that editorial piece that is what put this author on Appendix N, that would be fantastic because I am genuinely curious now. Well, and Offit was such a strange duck. Yeah, yeah, that's a word for it. <laughs> he was he was the president of the Science Fiction Writers of America from 1976 to 78, but he okay. wrote so much erotica. Ooh. Okay, at least 420 pornographic novels <laughs> that after his death, his son Chris remarked, I came to understand that my father had passed as a science fiction writer while actually pursuing a 50-year career as a pornographer. Now, so, let, me, I mean, l- is- let me dovetail that into some of the quotes taken strictly from this book. Things like, everyone knows publishers have lots of money. Ha! Um, or, <laughs> or you can write science fiction and stay hungry. You know, <laughs> come on. The, the dichotomy of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's definitely... Well, it, yeah, so, yeah it, it, it is interesting. And it's and it, it is a, this sort of farce because, you know, you, the setup of publishers are the antagonist. And there's such a convoluted scheme for revenge that is. Oh, yes. I love the, I love the Easter Island revenge theme. I really like that one. But yeah, where all of the idols were actually modeled after the publisher. But then when he came back, the publisher had made so much money, he had hair plugs and a mustache and no longer looked like him. And a nose job. Yeah, yeah, to get rid of Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or even the allegory, you know, Harvey himself, the character author, had written 57 titles for Morpheus books within six years using 11 pen names. (laughs) Which is pretty accurate to Offit, who used so many pen names that he considered one of those pen names an alter ego of whom the others were pen names. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, early on, like maybe the second page, you get a description of the editor's voice, like Ed McMahon doing W.C. Fields sober with a cold and about to cry. I, yeah, okay, That that is better than any illustration you can give me of what this editor looks like. That is, yeah, that that's a little unnerving. I, I mean, just the, yeah, I could totally hear this. <laughs> well, and I think, I think it was really his post appendix and work that, that really shines because his Conan stuff was written in 79. He wrote hmm. for the Thieves World series, which was certainly post appendix N. He did several Cormac Mac art books, which is another hero hmm. of Robert E. Howard. He actually wrote more okay. stories with that character than Howard did. It, it is oh, really interesting Cormac. that his, his okay. life is, I mean, this, this story is about him and, and, in that kind of parallelism, he's his own sort of hack, but it, I mean, in a good way, because I think those stories probably stands out, you know, since they, they're evident of some of his skill, but he was essentially applying that skill to be the voice of these existing characters or the existing styles, you know, and it's, and a lot of that goes back to Harvey Moss and how he's, you know, having to do this, this sort of drudgery, 
without having his own voice. You know, he never really finds that in the story itself. Yeah, although he is certainly uh, not shy in taking out other people's voices. No. And you guys as authors don't know anything about having to write to a particular voice. Well, it, it, it no, did make me think of like this. It, <laughs> there is a, a little bit of a parallel in terms of the gaming industry, you know, the RPG industry. Of It's not a, a place you're going to make money, you're right? It, it is one of these things that... <laughs> Yeah, that, that you. Why do you think I was laughing, man? <laughs> and and the and the people that you know that do stand out, you know that they're very few and far between. They're often though having to take on the drudgery work just to, you know, get to the point where they have some of the freedom of publishing the things that are the science fiction, right? The things that they they can write science fiction and stay hungry. They can they can write RPGs that they truly believe in, and they still are going to stay hungry. They just have to take on these other sort of you know, more populistic voice of, at the whim of the editor uh, or the publisher that they're going with. And they have to use the name Harley Strove as their pen name the whole time, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's, that's Michael Curtis's pen Written name. Written in who's black an crayon yeah. with Michael Curtis's blood hand. <laughs> I always, yeah. I always, yeah, I always thought it was uh, Michael Curtis's pen name was Harley Strove. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. I mean, Offit only passed away five years ago. So, I mean, he certainly... Oh, jeez. He had quite a career because he sold his first story in like 54 and he was... When he died, he still had 30 manuscripts that had yet to be published. Wow. Uh, yeah. And he was he was writing as many as like 10 novels a year. He had 17 pen names. I mean, he was just, you know, Harlan Ellison used to talk about if you're going to be a writer, you have to write. Writers write. Yeah. It's what they do. And I don't think Offit like ate or slept. Yeah. I, I, I could mean, I could see this. Do you know much about how like his... His works are they typically the short story length, or are they? Does he did you? Oh no, he wrote he wrote quite a few novels as well. I mean, Uh, although let's see, it does stand to note that if anyone is curious, we are not actually interested in reading his pornographic works, (laughs) especially if they are as self centered as this particular short story. There there was a little bit of of booze and broads uh, in this book, you know, as he put it. Uh, which yeah, I, I, could, I could tell maybe, the R&R. maybe was part of his, the, uh, his, his general writing style. He had at least 40 non-erotica novels, full-blown novels. Not oh, novels. So, it, so a tenth of his uh, output was... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, here's, here's wow. the scary thing. So he wrote you know, 420, we'll call them erotic works, right? So mm-hmm. he'd only managed to publish 130 of them before the market dried up in the 80s. And so he then just went to self-publishing them for the next 25 years. Mm. I'm out. Okay. Yeah. Um, so an interesting, an interesting man was Offit. So I'm, I'm going to say, uh, yes, that's quite the commentary on the author. Uh, the book itself. <laughs> <laughs> Let's switch it back. <laughs> like the quote that the entire book opens with is, there are many inventions you never heard about because no one has found a good use for them. I really liked that, yeah. And very similarly, the V-dub, as they call it, goes as far into the future as tomorrow, but never any further. Because tomorrow might still change. I thought that, or the day after tomorrow might still change. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. So they're changing the past. But you still have that butterfly effect. So one little thing that you do in the past, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned in the synopsis there, he goes back to spur human development. He goes back to pre-Neanderthals and is trying to communicate with societies, if you can call it that, and trying to get them to 
continue making these pictographs on the walls. And yeah, but it's not really, I mean, in some ways it's, he's sort of becoming the spark for all those inventions and all the stories. Right. Because, you know, he goes back and inspires Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein and Mm -hmm. Oladari to do um, the vampire. Exactly. Right. So it's, it's, it's almost this, he's the agent that has to be there in these timelines and he's making small shifts that end up, you know, almost like spot wielding to change the publisher's outcome of his, his publishing or be able to, you know, I think the second time he goes back and his second plan is a little bit more refined because he, he's not so much that spark. He's the deterrent for the Bronte sisters. And he's the, the oh, one that was awesome. The one that he's yeah. basically killing Gothic, you know, work at that point. And that's also the sort of So that nice, he could turn know. around and start it in the fifties. Right. Yeah. That was brilliant. Well, and I love the fact that he convinced Shelley to, to change the name of her protagonist from Victor Schmidt to, uh, <laughs> To Frankenstein, yeah. It, I mean, it's it is a fun little farcical thing, there, and I I like that he keeps it light. You know, the author keeps it pretty light in terms of like he's not really trying to get into the scientific explanation. You know, I think at one point, you know, he's the characters say we're not, you know, we're not scientists, we're engineers. You know, we're doing right. it. But we, we don't yeah, know how. We, we know what <laughs> we know it works. We don't know how. Right. Well, especially when they start talking about wait a minute, um, if we're traveling through time, shouldn't we be off of the planet because the Earth is moving at this rate? We should be like 147 astronomical units away by now. Yeah, and, and, like, <laughs> and the guy kind of pales. He's like, uh, well, it works. I have thought about yeah, that. Just keep going with it. <laughs> so long as we can tack a scientific sounding tag on it, we feel a lot better. A while back, it was witchcraft. Now it's science. Come to think, both witchcraft and scientific problems tend to yield to the same sort of solution. A whole lot of Latin words. Oh, we love that quote. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. He also spark, you know, sprinkles in some, you know, little evidences of reality. Like the bus has to get, or the micro wagon, or the, the, the it has to get refueled. So mm-hmm. he always picks going to 1961 Louisville, you know, to to go to a spot to like get his gas and things like that. Well, yeah, to get because his that's gas where his girl lives. Know, there happens to be a young lady there that's right. very attractive to. So. <laughs> that's right. Right. This one wasn't an erotica piece. That was apparently a companion novel. We don't have those chapters, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> but yeah, I did. I I found that all very fun. And it was very interesting that the photographs that he was taking, you know, he would surreptitiously take some photos of the primitive works that were being done. I mean, he goes back and plays God to these people and gets them to build the pyramids. It's a little bit Mary Sue to me, but okay, we'll roll with it. And somehow the photographs that he's taking in that time as they're transported back with him, they're perfectly clear. So those are what get inserted into the book. Well, it, yeah. it, it's audio recordings and oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that's an interesting just we're not even going to worry about the fact that technology might not work or, or remain as is as it bounces back and forth. OK, that, that's an interesting theory. Well, it, it, it is, it plays into this idea that this is a, a very unusual way to approach, you know, the, what benefit do I get out of time travel? You know, it's the sort of like, I can yes. go back and bet on the horses, you know, kind of compared to this is a very gothic time travel quest, right? Where he has to, he's as an author, he yeah. has to go back and reauthor the world. And it becomes this, the idea that he has to do these things just to get back at his his editor or his publisher you know that's that he feels like he's been slided against it's, it's just it's it's fun originally he's sent back with this huge to do oh, that's right yeah originally it was, from his editor it was the, it was the publisher's so, idea to do this this sort of like 
I'm yeah. going to write the perfect, I'm going to publish the perfect book and make a lot of money that way compared to the thousands of other ways that you could easily make as much money, you know, but without the, without the fame associated with it or without the, you know, the fact that he's, he, he won at publishing, right? That was his goal. Yeah. Now, did anybody else want to redo the aliens meme to read off it? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Because I totally did. I still might. Yeah. That that well, I don't know. As we have a cover to this particular book. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, well, that is fair. If I recall, it's taken from one of the best of sci-fi anthologies. And it was originally, I believe, it was originally published in uh, one of the old pulp. Ma- no, this was originally published, I think, in Analog Magazine. If hmm. I recall correctly. Oh, yeah, I, I have okay. like October nineteen. But it was published in a sci-fi magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I will confess that I came upon this mm, probably two to three years ago, and reading it back then, I was like, "Yeah, we got to do this one for the show eventually, when we needed something light." <laughs> so now is the time. <laughs> something a little less serious, perhaps. Yeah. So that said, um, yeah. So we've we've got this great. What'd you say? A VW Microbus. With 11 long-haired friends of Jesus in a chartreuse microbus. <laughs> C.W. McCall. This is so C.W. McCall. It's a convoy through time. That's my start. <laughs> so stat it for us, Bob. We got a sci-fi convoy. Rocking. Um, I think uh, things a stat. No, no. Audio's uh, later. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. Audio's <laughs> later. You got things stat. Yeah. Uh, you were singing. I could totally do. I could see the temporal traverser, the, the TT. As a mode of transport or an entire campaign hook. And you could certainly use it for MCC as well as DCC uh, because you could use it as another way, just sort of like um, Ningobble's Cave. You could take it all sorts of places. You could just have this wizard wagon that could go anywhere, anytime and allow you that that, uh, plot device. Oh, so this is uh, Daniel J. Bishop's next Encounters book? Well, funny you mention that, because <laughs> I can see writing writing this up as an unofficial sequel to The Tribe of Og and the Gift of Sus, which was <laughs> written by Daniel J. Bishop, be, just because, you know, okay, well, I'm going to tell these cavemen, these near humans, and he stresses that, they're almost human. You know, dig all these caves, and, and here's cave paintings, keep doing these. And I was like, okay, so you've had a very active patron has come and interacted with a tribe. I could so I could so see, you know, statting the writer up as a patron. I could see, you know, doing doing up the tribes that he's interacted with and things of that nature as well. Yeah, definitely. They also talk about equipping the V dub with like an electron gun. Oh, and a thermal lens. And a, yeah, and I a thermal drill and Putting like some skis on the front of it to make it a makeshift forklift. Yeah, yeah. To, to like, because apparently is, objects that it lifts become weightless in time travel terms. <laughs> they don't know why. Again, it's just it does. Yeah, it's a suspension of disbelief, mm-hmm. right? That, it's a suspension of the laws of physics, but okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a farce. Okay, yeah. So the thermal drill that could be an interesting thing to actually put stats to, as well as maybe the actual results of when the TT does its thing, because there's this huge bang as the space is vacated and there's that rush of air to, to fill it again. And when the professor or the doctor rather used it the first time, he 
was made a laughing stock and was forced out of his job because he pretty much demolished the whole hall that he was, well, operating in because it took out two sides of the building when it left. So they started doing everything in a plane. And yeah, I think if you were to just force a couple of physics things into it and pair that up with what you write up as a mode of transport, Bob, I, I think that could be an interesting like cause and effect thing that might not be expected. It's just important to remember time travel is an outdoor activity. <laughs> you, you don't you don't play ball or time travel in the house. <laughs> Thank you. Very well put. Did anything stand out to you, Mark? Well, you mentioned he's got these tools that he applies to the, the temporal transporter, the like the electron beam generator that was an experimental device being developed for NASA by I can't remember if it was like Lockheed or some some sort of uh, you know a commercial or corporation similar like yeah it, it was I, I it's not clear exactly what that is in the story other than it has these effects that he sort of presents to the natives and he uses it to tunnel that and the thermal drill i think were the other the other sort of thing that became this weaponized you know sort of you know way of of taking it and presenting it to the natives as this i'm brandishing my gun and firing it and making loud noises sort of thing i, I it kind of cool to stat those up in a an mcc artifact context using oh, yeah. using artifacts yeah. rules for you know maybe the adventurers maybe this thing is left for them to discover but it also maybe the time travel doesn't work but these these tools do and 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 taking those as as sort of alternatives for some of the mcc artifacts that are in the, in the core book for mcc i think you could you could do stuff with there but just make it a little bit more interesting by making the actual artifact critical failures uh a little bit more specific to oh, these, yeah. these tools and, and the devices, maybe something temporally too, since, you know, the critical failure sort of invokes, you know, some little leftover, whatever you want to call it, chronoton particles that, you know, right. you might you might want to um, have that trigger something in, in terms of the, the player's effects if they use it, misuse it. So I thought those two were, were the sort of things that it really, the rest, of, the rest of it's not, I mean, you can't really stat up the lasciviousness of the author are they are there are they or the narrator i guess not the author maybe the not, standard. no that, that's a that's a different system altogether yeah, exactly you know? yeah but but you know it really made me think of mcc and sort of artifacts and, and those those things and i think you could do something with little specialized artifact crit tables especially um that were more time oriented so i think it'd be fun to do yeah and, and honestly bouncing back to uh doing the temporal traverser bob mm-hmm. it would almost be like the focus for a patron AI, because I don't know that you would want to give players full agency with it, because then they could say, hey, let's go to this really powerful person and jump back a few years and undid whatever that climactic point was, whatever that turning point was True. that made him so powerful. Uh, they could undo your entire game or your entire setting, at least. I'm and just, that, that could I be... Hmm. I'm, I'm laughing part on the record and part off the record in the fact mm -hmm. that you are editing an adventure of mine that has something similar that you know, the players do not have full agency over. Hmm. No, I'm not. Did you finish it? That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, things to stat seem pretty uh, short and sweet because most of what we're presented with are essentially three individuals and... A VW Squareback Station Wagon, <laughs> or as I like to call it, Wizard Van. So for props and audio suggestions, um, 
you know, I'll I'll start with Mark because I my list is a little bit shorter today. I I have a very short list, and this is sort of a half formed idea. But what intrigued me about this the 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 work here that was a little bit more inspiring for this section was the idea of these you know, he goes back in time and he has the Neolithic or the pre humans painting you know the you know what what you could in the future be rediscovered as primitive art you know this sort of like proto art that he's trying to capture how it was created and present that in the in the you know to the the world as a published novel that becomes this big bestseller what that made me think of was was the idea that you could use something like that as a prop where the players discover these primitive images and this is kind of like a half-formed idea like i said but you know these primitive images are gateways or clues to a larger campaign but then you could take it a step further and if you bring in some of the time travel elements to it you know maybe these primitive images show things that are part of the character story right where they and they change mm. over time where the the thing is that you know perhaps the next time they're presented with these images something about them is altered and maybe they are they have to discover what that is, right? What what is that causal thing that's changed their current situation? And it gets tricky when we when you do time travel adventures. I mean, you, it really is hard to do this right. And and having struggled with that in a couple of times when I've I tried to you know work that into to mine, it's it is something that's very tricky to do. But it, it is indeed. But I think you could come up with something where you know maybe the maybe the genesis of it is that these primitive paintings clearly show their adventuring party, you know, doing something in the past where they have no memory of that, right? And that becomes this story arc where they get sent back in time and they they are you know that that becomes you know something that they are an, an epic part of that gets documented that way or maybe you know there's some some trigger there but I, just the idea of those kind of primitive art styles being presented to the players as props and having them be clues to some larger campaign context is what really made me sort of go down that path with this story so it was thin I, I think that that was really intriguing to me you know just the idea that you know, he his first impulse is to go back and have this narrative that's documented, you know, as part of the the way to alter history or influence history. And I think you could you could take that idea and apply it to the table, especially if you you had that ability to sort of recreate like some some cave paintings on, you know, a, a type of media, or maybe that's painted on the you know where you're playing the game and these like you know maybe maybe that's what you're putting up for the players to see and they, they have to explore what that means. Okay, that's pretty cool because it. It's similar to something I was going to suggest, but I think you've expanded on it because my initial thought was maybe some Polaroids of like some museum exhibits set out as kind of a foreshadowing. Yeah. And they, they don't know the context, but it's, it's, it, it becomes this intriguing thing, you know, that they, it's a, it's almost like that call of Cthulhu sort of clue, you know, that's sort of laid out before them. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's really what I was kind of going with. I, I was having that feel of a more modern setting with like a box full of props that, Hey, uh, here's the project name. You don't know what it's in regards to, but it's kind of tucked into a little handmade newspaper or article or something. And, you know, here's the location. I love the name Chinchilla, Pennsylvania. And <laughs> maybe maybe you find something with a, a trail of linked corporation names like Transtempus Inc. And that is connected to Morpheus books somehow. And, yeah, I dig the investigative side of that. My other thought was to actually take your game away from a table. And go play outside, play in an open field somewhere. 
Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Weather permitting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm done rambling. Bob? Prop wise, you know, Hot Wheels makes a number of great old VW models that you could use alongside your minis. <laughs> so oh, if you're a, if you're a minis user, that would certainly be something to look into. The old Hot Wheels and Matchbox. You can even get a get a van and make it a wizard van. Get the Gaslands terrain, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, any sort of like ancient looking idols or carvings or replicas thereof as props that characters could be carrying back with them to try and get replicated or I guess not really replicated so much as just started. That was my other kind of prop idea. Music wise, music from virtually any period, you could go nuts, right? I mean, where your characters start at, if your characters start in the eighties, you get a music from the sixties, the seventies, the fifties, you know, primal drumming. Although the one thing that kept coming to my brain, and I don't know why, was uh Solfeggio, which is the song the uh the Ernie Kovacs Nairobi trio plays. And uh, if you're familiar with that, it sort of fits the farcical nature of, of the story. And there are there are three apes and three characters to the story, so that sort of worked for me. <laughs> but yeah, and and it's a Kovex. That's interesting, <laughs> right? It was just it was one of those things where for me it was really hard to link onto any real music themes, just because the entire story is so transitory and not really set any when. In specific, besides the chartreuse microbus, yeah. Now I now I want to now I want to do a version of. I wonder if there's a if there's a like a a, a version of convoy for karaoke. Hmm. <laughs> oh lord! Oh, don't egg him on, Mark. Looks like we got He'll us a it. novel. <laughs> no, 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 no. We no. got a funky novel. It's not a novel if there's lots of the pictures night. in it. We got a gothic novel. Ain't this <laughs> <it>? <laughs> oh man. Okay, so uh, moving on. <laughs> I, I, think, I think the best thing to do now is to say, "Hey, Bob, talk to us some more instead of singing." Um, <laughs> okay. You did mention uh, a mod already, right? The tribe of Aga, the gift of Sus. You so easily could use you tack this story onto it as an expansion on the adventure or that that mini campaign setting. Now you ran that for the MA group once, right? Is that one we played? Um, I ran it. I don't. Th um, Fridays. Yes. Yeah. I ran it. I ran it once for the Metamorphosis Alpha Group. Yes. Okay. Um, just kind of for fun because it was such a great adventure, and it, and it, it did sort of kind fits. of have that same feel as MA and MCC, where you're playing the right. cavemen. Daniel J. Bishop wrote it for Mystic Bull Games, but they wrote it right before Frozen in Time was coming out. Oh, okay. And so Goodman mm -hmm. had a moratorium on caveman adventures, and so it was never a f it never received the official license. So it was later released for free on the Mystic Bull website. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. But it is, it's a great adventure and it does, it certainly, it captures an even more um, primitive feel for like MCC because you are cavemen and the Gift of Sus is uh, essentially a, a starship. So it it really does sort of capture that that weird MA, MCC vibe. And you could so, with, with a time traveler coming in, you could so build off of that. It would flow, I think, naturally. Not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, okay, yeah. so the story's from 74, yeah. so apparently the author is too. What if a couple other people hop in with him? You know, he's he's chatting up the Bronte sisters while other people are running around, <laughs> you know, and... 
no, Lord in, Byron, in don't Regency do it. era England, and uh, <laughs> so you could certainly have something like that. I not in Kansas anymore. Such a great adventure; it needs more love anyway. And you could easily be just kind of warping things around and changing things. And rather than one long dungeon to go through, maybe you go through part of not in Kansas anymore and you hop back. And then when you go back again, everything has changed to the next set of rooms because of the changes you made in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also yeah, frozen in time came to mind because again, primitive men, mm-hmm. you know, technology, these, all of that would blend so well with this story and just cut, cut an author with a grudge loose in any adventure. And I think, well, an author with a grudge is probably written in an adventure. So, you know, it all sort of works out <laughs> I think, in the end. Uh, those are That's my a little thoughts. too meta, Bob. I'm going to tag Mark in before me. Cause I, I, I'm sure he has some similar thoughts here. Well, I, I'll echo on with Bob for frozen in time, because what it immediately made me think of is that this is the time device that gets, uh, embedded in the ice, right? Instead of, you know, maybe it's it's part of that that genesis yeah. for the adventure. The, the, it's just a little bit. Right. It's it's the it's the author who gets carried away with not just altering the present for his benefit, but he goes and becomes a collector, right? And he's collecting the kitsch of the the current era or the the near current era or or whatever it is, you know, it, but it basically becomes this sort of like, you know, I could see him uh, becoming a, a collector of things that are just not quite up to their artistic value, but, you know, they, they have a lot more sort of kitschy feel to them. And that that's what you populate the rest of that, you know, that his, his, uh, the collectors are, you know, cave with or the collectors um, lair with. And, and I think you'd do some fun things with that. And, and having the VW bus at the, you know, sort of center of that would be kind of a fun, fun callback to this adventure. Um, so make it make it part of like this backstory, you know, more so than something that's integral to it. But you can certainly okay. take the voice and the in the voice of the narrator and and present that a little bit more. Definitely. The other thing that yeah. you know, I mentioned time travel stories. There's there's a number of them that that are out there. But there was one recently that was published in the the 2018 Gong Farmers Almanac called Ooh. Tomb Spire of the Silver Sun by Colin Mills, and it is a it's crafted in such a way that I think it it does a pretty good job of containing the time uh, causality aspects. Basically, you are every time you enter a room, you're sort of presented with one of three different narratives, whether it's the present, the past, or the future. And oh, neat. and it's in in the way it's it's crafted. Each of the rooms has like a you know this is what the room looks like in the past. This is what the room looks like in the present. This is what the room looks like in the future. Sort of aspect to it, and it's it's a it's kind of a, a good way of managing that for the judge, um, you know, such that you, you do have to go into the past to make sure you can save the future sort of thing. But it's a nice way of giving the judge the tools to take the time travel and make it easy for them, right? Rather than having to sort of do that invention on their own. He's, he, Colin did a, lo- a nice gotcha. job in sort of making that work. It's a short adventure, too. It's, it's, it can be played in an, easily in a session. Oh, I look forward to reading that yeah, one. It's 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 good. And those are the two that came to mind for me. Uh, what about you, Jen? You know, uh, one, one more springs to my mind now that uh, now that we're actually talking full blown time travel adventures. What? Well, um, there's an adventure for uh, for Goodman Games' fifth edition line called Castle in the Sky. You can see <laughs> the big smile, <laughs> um, and that actually also deals with time travel in a 
in the fashion where you've got this this floating cloud castle straight out of classic D&D, but it's in ruins, and you're trying to figure out what disaster befell it, and time is fractured on the castle. So as you're moving from place to place, you're moving into different zones of time in the castle's history, and you have a chance to undo or prevent that disaster from befalling the castle. I can't remember the author's name, but I hear he's a really, really nice guy with a big... No clue. I, I remember playing in the. It's, it's some pseudonym, I think. It's, it, you know, but it's a pseudonym. Oh, oh, it's Harley Strode. It's another, another yeah. pseudonym yeah. for Harley Strode. It's a pseudonym of Michael Curtis. It's one of Michael Curtis's pseudonyms. Yeah, yeah what was it? Uh, number 12? Something like that. Oh, I was going to say it first. Um, there was this great little module in, I think it was the 2017 Goodman Games Gen Con program. Dinosaur Crawl Classics? <laughs> that Which I still maintain should have been called Velociraptor Claw Class. Mm. Well, yeah, because then we would have had VCC instead of DCC. Right. I, I can understand the possible confusion there. But the nice juxtaposition of time and, yeah, I, there's just there's a spot in my heart for that one. And this could just totally dovetail in with it perfectly along the lines of the primitive men and you know kind of soaking up the fact that ooh, because i can come and go and i have all these great weapons i clearly am a god i would go with operation unfathomable yeah and it especially if you have anything along the lines of technology um there are races in there that you will be teaching how to paint on walls. Mm -hmm. And along the lines of the gothic novels and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I've got to send a little love to The Corpse That Love Built, this year's Halloween module by Stephen Newton. It is... We're not allowed to call it a sequel, but there are some things that might be a little bit familiar if you've read the Halloween module three years ago. And... There, there might be a couple of similarities between, say, some family names. So just the fact that the Gothic is back and you could really easily place the Bronte sisters on, on the doorstep of this one and uh, Harvey Moss's interactions with them and his just making them not love the genre anymore. <laughs> and and you can do it quite tongue-in-cheek and make it very much Harvey Moss's style. But uh, speaking of tongue-in-cheek, I think that does bring us to our feature for this show, uh, which is going to be Beyond the Silver Scream by Forrest Gary. Players begin as high school kids in the mid-70s, early 80s, who go to the local CD theater to catch the premiere of the new horror flick, Screaming sorority girls from Planet Playtex. But the horror isn't confined to just the screen, and the special effects are all too real. So take a seat and brace yourself for an adventure where the director isn't the only one doing the cutting. <laughs> this is such a fun adventure. It is. Do we not deliver? <laughs> uh, come on, you have the wizard van, and it really does take you to different times and places. Come on. Wait a minute. In the in the adventure, the wizard van is is 
kind of strange in the way it works as opposed to just sort of driving around. But yes, there is a wizard van. Well, the other one doesn't necessarily drive around. Um, well, yeah, it, but, but you end up in a different place and, well, and there's a big yes, bang. Yes, yes, you do end up in different places. I, I totally and, agree and, with you. There. And there's a big loud bang with it. And yeah. It, <laughs> well, the, the, this the, is totally the, it. The loud, the loud banging in the Beyond the Silver Scream, I think, is different from the loud banging <laughs> that happens in the story. Um, although off it would have you think otherwise. It's, it, um, oh, it's, it's, it's in one of his related novels, I think is, is yeah. right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Under, under one of 17 pseudonyms. <laughs> Either way, your eight track gets screwed up. <sighs> well, I could so totally see using this story as kind of a launching point for sequel adventures. If you want to use silver scream for campaign play and, and now granted the end of the adventure does kind of give you that option of taking your seventies, eighties characters and dropping them into kind of a, a more traditional DCC universe. So there's certainly already an existing option for campaign play, but I think that using this particular adventure as kind of a jumping off point with ideas, you could continue using the van for sequel adventures. Well, and if we're talking about integrating this particular piece of fiction with this module, I think the story can be seamlessly fleshed into the mod and vice versa, with the movie theater being one of the stops. And those areas that the adventurers discover in the module, they're kind of, they're fairly timeless, not necessarily modern. And they could be part of the architectural features that Harvey's orchestrating. Oh, God. And maybe the reason the, the wizard van is there is just because it's sitting idle because he's gassed up and he's visiting his lady companion that he loves so much when your players then find the van. Yeah. And and that leads me to, to uh, relate that even off its history meshes with the description of this adventure. So, uh... <laughs> Yeah, just move it to like 1961 and make the make the movie like uh, the screaming sorority girls of the little house down the lane. You <laughs> <laughs> have that whole kind of early pre proto slasher vibe going for it. It'd be perfect. Oh man, I guess it- I'm creeped out now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you could also make the movie a little bit more of that gothic tone job, right, to it, it to tie it directly. Oh, that would be hysterical. Yeah, oh. Oh, like, it, it it could be screaming sorority girls of dark shadows. Uh, <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, or a little yeah. bit more, a little bit more Thank Suspiria, you, a little, you know, a little bit yeah. closer to that, that vibe. Ooh, the soundtrack yeah. with Suspiria would be oh, great. Yeah. Run. yeah, if you were just running beyond the silver scream, I totally would use the Goblin soundtrack. Suspiria. And so maybe the walls of, of the module areas are have a little bit more of a dusty cobweb bricky feel. You know, make it a little more gothic. <laughs> maybe the villain's name is Barnabas. I, what I, th- I like about this tie is also the, the voice <laughs> of both what Forrest is translating from a modern perspective and what Offit is doing, the, the farcical sort of playfulness of it. It, it could, it's a really good fit from that point of view because this is a really playful adventure. You know, Offit is clearly having a lot of fun when he's writing this this sort of whimsical story of, of time travel. Yeah. And I, I think that that's you kind of need that lightness every once in a while for your players. You know, even to even if it's just yeah. like a one off, or even if it's a good way of introducing the players to DCC or into the setting, I, I, that it's fun to take that that playful element and and bring it to the table, which DCC does really well. Yeah, and I think Forrest does a really good job in in, in doing that with Silver Scream. I hadn't gotten a chance to read it before uh, sitting at a pl- 
table for him to run it for us at uh, Game Hall two years ago. And yeah, I was I was really impressed by the balance of levity because there are some moments where like, oh, crap. Yeah, uh, he died and it was horrible. But then it was, oh, that character died and it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Hey, no, this is perfect. OK. And yeah, I mean, even at the very beginning, you're starting out with movie theater props. Okay, you're running out. You're going to grab anything? Yeah, I'm going to grab the push broom. And that becomes your weapon for the entire game. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, someone grabbed like one of the trash cans. It didn't fit real well with us in, in the wizard van, but <laughs> 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 made things interesting. And yeah, I, I, I'm really happy that we were able to uh, finally make this pairing because it, it's been on my list for a while, as irreverent as this piece is and this author, and with as much mystery as we have as to why he ended up on Appendix N in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that it, it's it's a good pairing, and I, I think we could have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. So it looks like that takes us to our shout-outs over here. Woohoo. And I will kick it off. The DCC at RPG NYC group on Meetup is hosting weekly games rotating between Judges Hoy, Andrew Sternick, Vasily Kaliman, and David Willems at the Brooklyn Strategist on Saturday afternoons. Please note that the Brooklyn Strategist does have a $10 cover charge. And check the Meetup group for specific game schedules. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Daniel J. Bishop and Toronto Crawl Classics are off and running with a mix-and-match campaign. Players are encouraged to drop in for any session to join in the fun. It all takes place at The Sword and Board on Bloor Street from 5 to 9.30. Check with Daniel J. Bishop online or with the store for specific details. Judge Jonah Vark Troyer is running an open table every Thursday night from 6 to 10 p.m. at Better World Books in Goshen, Indiana. She is also at Secret Door Games in Elkhart, Indiana every other Saturday. And Judge Marlene Whitmer is running on alternate Saturdays. Mike Carlson is running open table DCC games on the second and fourth Mondays of the month at Everybody Reads Books and Stuff in Lansing, Michigan. Games start at 6.30. Tim Lawchrist is running DCC at Blank Comics in Florence, Alabama, every other Sunday. The next games should be December 2nd and 16th, but check with Tim or the store for further details. Christian Bird is hosting a regular open game on Tuesdays at the Beer Temple in Chicago. Mario Garcia runs a weekly DCC game on Thursday evenings at Funnigan Games in Eugene, Oregon. Judges Jen and Bob Brinkman. Hey, that's us. We'll be running a monthly open table games at Dungeon Games in Estero, Florida. More details to be announced soon. I think I think the Bob, working plan. You should be using your, your. What's that? I think you guys should be using your pseudonyms and saying that Harley Stroh is running those games. Oh yes, um, uh, Michael Curtis pseudonym Harley Stroh <laughs> and Harley Stroh. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be running monthly open table games at Dungeon Games in Estero, Florida. More details will be announced soon, or contact Harley Stroh for details. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Troy Tucker will be there to oversee everything, right? Are you running Road Crew Games? 
drop us a line at the hub at sanctum.media to let us know. Even better, join the Guardians of Secrets. Send us your upcoming events for inclusion, and once you have submitted a few successfully run events, you will be inducted into the roles of the Guardians of Secrets, able to enter your events directly onto the calendar. Members will periodically receive exclusive items for their tables, such as the free RPG Day Companion, the print-on-demand Appendix and Nightmares, and other secret benefits to come. If you're listening and looking for a game, go to sanctum.media and click on the community events link. Be sure to scroll all the way down for full venue and host judge information. And calling our fellow readers. We would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and reading. Keep an eye or ear out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion, the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine. Remember, we have quite a few things in our prize closet to give away in return for contributions. Zines, modules, even some great Appendix N. And there's even more after some bookstore raids this past week. (laughs) Submit your creations to us. Again, that's thehub at sanctum.media. In the meantime, if you are enjoying the show, help us by posting a review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast. You can also drop us an email, comment on the podcast, chime in on our G Plus page, Wallet check out the new MeWe page, mention us on Facebook, and ignore us on Ello forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. <sighs> we hope we've inspired you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Return to the Sanctum Secorum as we ring in the new year with the study of Frederick Brown's Arena. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.